So we're in Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 22 through to chapter 4, verse 1. Slaves, obey your earthly master in everything, and do it not only with their eye, when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Well, over the last uh, couple weeks, we've been thinking about the theme of work and what the scriptures have to say about work. The majority of our waking lives is spent working, of course, in one way or another. Um, and so, therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that God has a lot to say about it and a lot to tell us in the Bible. First, we saw that in God's original creation, work is good. God is a worker. He worked to create, and he's made humanity in his image to work. He put us in the world of abundant potential, and he tells us, go into the, this world and make it productive, make it produce good things, rule over it, and subdue it. Through our labor and our creativity, we bring order to chaos, or we bring chaos to order, rather. We make uh, a barren land, lush and, and productive, and, um, with um, food and, and fruit and, and those sorts of things. We turn raw materials in creation into useful things, into valuable things, into beautiful things. The great dignity and purpose of our work explains why uh, we always need to have some sort of work to live a good and godly life whether we're retired or staying at home with children or um, unable to do paid work or, or not needing to do paid work for some reason, we still need to work in order to live a good and godly life because that's how God has made us. That was week one. Week two, however, we saw that we no longer live in that uh, completely good world that it was created as. Due to human sin, we, we saw that our work is also cursed. All our work is now marked by pain, by frustration, by difficulty, and ultimately by futility. Though we were made to rule over the earth and subdue it, we will never now accomplish that high calling by human effort alone because thorns and thistles will prevent us from accomplishing as much as we envision death will ultimately see that all our efforts are uh, futile. And this explains why we cannot find lasting satisfaction, lasting fulfillment in our work as much as we think uh, we might find it there. In the end, it's frustrating. It's, and we're frustrated. God has graciously frustrated us so that we are driven to him and uh, not to the idols that, of our work and, and of our world. 
And having laid that groundwork, this week we come to look at the glorious truth that for the Christian, our work is also redeemed. Our work is also restored. The, the story of the Bible is a story of God's restoration work in the world. And far from leaving us in this sort of sin-cursed state that we got ourselves into, right from the beginning, Genesis 3, chapter 15, or, sorry, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God is already promising, I'm going to send somebody who's going to redeem this mess that you've created. And the story of Scripture is the story of that redemption, that restoration. Jesus is the promised Savior. He is the one who is our Redeemer. He's the one that sets a broken world right. And he does that even in the context of our work. For Christian people, Jesus impacts every square inch of life, everything we do and everything that we are. He makes a difference to how we live here and now, even if life in this world has not yet been fully restored. And so you can see that in all sorts of ways, this now and not yet principle. We are now justified before God. We're no longer guilty of sin, and yet we still struggle with sin and will one day be delivered fully from it. In the same way, work is, is redeemed. It's restored now already. Uh, and yet we struggle with the, the frustration of it. But one day we will see the, the, um, the goodness of it in full. The complete restoration. And so we see something of how our work is redeemed here from Colossians chapter 3. Uh, these verses come as uh, part of the, the household code which Paul gives to every member of a household to, to tell them how you ought to live as Christians, changed lives as Christians, as a father or mother, as a, a child, as um, a, a, a wife or a husband, and as our reading talked about, as slaves and masters. And Paul is trying to show how being united to Christ should transform every duty, every relationship of every member of the household. Now, when we read slaves, the word slaves, we naturally will begin to think about the, the horrors of the 19th century um, transatlantic slave trade, race-based, horrifying. And so I just want to address that briefly as we begin. Uh, because in the Roman Empire, as you went about your business, you might not easily be able to tell the difference between a slave and a free person. It wasn't like that 19th century slave trade. Um, slaves would have sometimes had much more education and had many more skills than their masters because they would be put over their businesses and they would have to run them. They were sometimes given a great deal of authority in the, the city that they worked in. They were sometimes able to save significant amounts of money and so could be reasonably wealthy. Um, it certainly wasn't pleasant to be a slave in the Roman Empire. Paul encourages Christian slaves to seek their freedom when they're able and to take it if they're able to. He also encourages a Christian slave owner in the book of Philemon um, to free his slave. And so it's not that slavery is a good and is a wonderful thing in the Roman Empire, um, but I think 
Um, it's analogous to, it, it's something like work relationships of employees and managers, of bosses and um, clients and, and so forth. I think we can apply what we read here to that world of work while at the same time rejecting the institution of slavery and uh, doing that on biblical grounds. The Bible gives the world the resources to reject slavery, and ultimately the Bible is why the world has rejected slavery um, for hundreds of years now. That was Christians who brought that about. So when we, we look at this section and think about our work, we can see that our Christian faith should transform our work in um, several ways. And I was helped in seeing some of these things from Daniel Doriani's book, Work, Its Purpose, Dignity, and Transformation. That's on the book stall back there if you want to chase these things up and, and think more about them. But first, we see that Christian faith gives us good goals for our work. It gives us good goals for our work. So Paul tells workers this. He says, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. The goals we have for our work make a huge difference to both what we do and to how we do it. If we're working towards a worthy goal, we will be motivated to work hard, to persevere, even when it's difficult, even when it's frustrating, uh, even when our work seems like it's going nowhere. Christian faith helps us to identify what the worthy goals to work for are. And it assures us that our labor is not in vain. Um, there's a, a famous story of a traveler coming through medieval Europe. He sees these stonemasons at work, and he asks them what they're doing. There are three of them. The first one, he says, I'm cutting stones. They're all cutting stones. And the first one says, I'm cutting stones. And the second one, he asks, what are you doing? And uh, he says, I'm providing for my family. And the third one, he's doing the same thing, seemingly, but he asks him, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a cathedral to the glory of God. And, and so you can see how the goal set before them uh, empowers their work and, and gives them a, a drive to do what they're doing. We can take issue with the idea that cathedrals bring glory to God. That's a discussion to have. But you, you see the point about having the right goal, giving the work its focus. And people in the wider culture, we will, uh, they will have all sorts of opinions about what makes a project worthy. You know, they, might have, they might think um, selling a product is a worthy goal, or expanding an empire is a worthy goal, or making a name for themselves is a worthy goal. But because they don't know the God who is, because they don't know and understand the fallenness of the world, their goals will often be unworthy they'll often lead to dissatisfaction or despair. What do I mean? Well, if a person's desire is to make as much money as possible, that is not a worthy goal for work. It's not a worthy goal. If a person's desire is to make a great name for themselves or to express themselves or, or, or to rule over others, those are not worthy goals because they place that person at the center of the goals at the center of the universe of their work. People who work for those goals have put their own glory, their own will at the center. 
But even people with worthy goals, if, if they don't know the God who is, um, they will lead to disappointment. Alleviating suffering, doing justice, helping people to lead flourishing lives, those are good goals, those are worthy goals, and yet they will be bound to disappointment when they are unable to do all that they hope to do. They'll be frustrated by the thorns and thistles of poverty and of sin and of disease that make it seem like they're uh, moving backwards in their work. They'll always face the futility of death and that death brings. And so you can think of the doctor who successfully treats and heals somebody and then um, a year later they die of something else. Christians, on the other hand, know God. They understand his character. They, they know what he says are worthy goals. What are worthy goals according to God? Well, the things that God tells us he values in the Bible. So glorifying God, that's a key goal. Uh, loving our neighbors, that's another key goal. Caring for widows and orphans, creating beauty, preserving life, cultivating virtue, revealing truth, pursuing justice, healing what is broken, providing for human flourishing, and, and we could name a lot of other ones. The better we know our Bibles, the more we'll be able to discern what is a worthy goal in my line of work. We know that work aiming at those goals will be worthy because those are the things that God himself values. He has given them their worth. And Christians also will not fall into uh, dissatisfaction or despair because we know that we will be fruitful in that work even if we never see the results. Why? Because God has promised that he is going to accomplish those things fully and finally in the end. He is going to build his church. He is going to make sure that perfect justice is done. He will defend widows and orphans. He will reveal truth to all people. He'll wipe away every tear from every eye, and so forth and so on. One day, he will do all those things perfectly, fully, and finally, but even now, he is pleased when we're working to do those things in a temporary, provisional sort of way. When we work for the Lord, and not for human masters, but for the Lord, our work is fruitful. In his book, Doriani gives the example of Johannes Gutenberg, the inventor of the printing press. Consider Gutenberg, the inventor of the printing press, a movable type. He aimed to reproduce texts at reduced costs in sufficient quantities to grant common people access to great texts, beginning with the Bible. Essentially, he was bankrupted by his effort to print the Bible. Gutenberg died in near obscurity, probably thinking he had labored in vain, but others saw his project to fruition. His invention fueled the Renaissance, the Reformation, the development of modern science, and the movement toward universal literacy. Now, that's not a bad legacy as far as legacies go. He had good goals for his work because he knew the Lord, and he worked for the Lord and not for human masters. And whether he knew it or not, it turned out that his work was incredibly fruitful. And I think when, when God is the one um, who is accomplishing 
these good goals in the end, every Christian person who has his priorities in mind for their work can be sure that their work will be fruitful as well. We will not labor in vain. So first, the Christian faith gives us good goals for our work. Secondly, the Christian faith commands good standards for our work. Paul tells employers and managers this, Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that they also, uh, you know that you also have a master in heaven. Not only our goals, but also our standards of work should be shaped by our Christian faith. Masters and CEOs, they can tend to assume that if my organization's goals are good, then I'm justified in using whatever means to accomplish it. Whatever um, whatever means possible to get that good end that I'm working towards. So hazardous working conditions, low pay, long hours, harsh management styles, and so forth. But when we, we look at the Bible, we see that God is as concerned with the standards of our work as he is with the goals of our work. You cannot read the scriptures and think that God is indifferent about justice, that he doesn't care about fair labor practices, that he, he doesn't concern himself with good patterns of rest for employees. He has spoken about all those things and more. God expects his people to open up the scriptures and to see how they apply to their work how godly standards apply. Every profession, every job will have its own temptations that, that um, draw people to do things in ungodly ways by ungodly standards. That's as true for the doorman of the company as it is for the CEO of the company. But God's law shows us how to avoid sin and how to work with integrity. Now, granted, the, the Bible was written to a different uh, era uh, in history, and so it takes some work sometimes to see how those standards apply uh, in our modern context. But with wisdom, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we will see that it does apply. He commands merchants to use, to use fair weights and measures in Deuteronomy 25. He commands shepherds to guard their flocks in Ezekiel 34. He commands rulers and judges to punish evil and to do justice all over the place in Scripture. He commands employers to give their employees a weekly Sabbath rest. He commands builders to make structures safe in Deuteronomy 22. Whatever line of work you are in, the Scriptures will speak to it, and you will find that God's law is a safeguard to you from all the sorts of things that really mess up the work of your colleagues and cause problems, the temptations that they chase after that lead to ultimately the futility of their work. And as Christians apply godly standards to our work, we, we will stand out. In a city where it is always um, some sort of scam going on, it, it's always some sort of deceit, some sort of corner cutting that, that is happening in business, the, the Christian tradesmen will be known for their honesty and for their quality of their work. The Christian manager will be known for her fairness and for the genuine concern she has for her employees. 
the Christian teacher will be known for the high value they put on truth in the classroom. The Christian parent will stand out for their persistent, loving discipline, even uh, when they want to pull their hair out, and so on. Because Christians know they have a master in heaven, they will show that they care about his standards in their work. Third, Christian faith cultivates a godly character at work. Paul says this to employees, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And God, he doesn't only want us to pursue right goals by the right standards, but he wants to, us to do it with the right motivations as well. And that is where character comes in. Someone once said that character is what you do when nobody is watching. It's the opposite of doing something uh, when the boss's eye is on you. And it determines a lot about how we work. Uh, a large part of our work, you'll, you'll see with just a, a moment's reflection, it's not governed by strict rules or uh, output parameters. It's, it's instead up to us to figure out how to navigate the situation uh, within the, the given parameters that we have. This week I was speaking to a Christian friend who was facing a dilemma in their work. Um, he, was, uh, he had a long-term colleague at work that he was particularly um, indebted to, particularly in things of faith, actually. He was a long-term colleague, meant a lot to him, but he was consistently a liability at work. He was not particularly honest, not particularly diligent, and messed things up quite often. He wanted to do what was uh, best for his friend, even if his friend was a pain. And so after his most recent screw-up, uh, he wanted to, to choose rightly in how he acted. He wanted to do what was best for the friend, best for the company, and he faced a dilemma. Should he let his friend be fired for his latest mistake, which would probably be best for the company? Or should he vouch for his friend out of loyalty and, and try to fix things for him again, even though that might be worse for the company? Or should he encourage his friend to resign and find another line of work and maybe help him to do that? It wasn't a matter of following rules for him in this situation. It's a murky situation, and, and that requires wisdom and character. And where is he going to get those things from? What character traits orient a Christian's moral compass at work? Well, the character traits of God himself. We're meant to, as we mature as Christians, to, to take on more and more of Christ's character as our own. And we could go to lots of parts of Scripture to see what God's character is like. But one place where God famously reveals his character is to Moses on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 34, verse 6, he says, uh, as he passes by Moses, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Ultimately, as we grow in faith, we'll come to reflect God's character. Compassion, grace, slow to anger, abounding.
abounding in love and faithfulness. Even in the parts of our work that are not governed by rules and regulations, we will show compassion for people. We will give grace to people. We will be patient with people. We'll show love. We'll be faithful and persist. A person whose character is shaped by the eternal God of the universe rather than by what seems most expedient at this moment, what's going to help me get ahead right here? Well, that sort of person that's shaped by God instead will be of much greater wisdom, of much higher character in the workplace. Fourth, Christian faith gives us discernment about our work, and this is the final point. Paul says to workers of every kind, whatever you do, verse 23, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, Christians should view their work as God views it, as something good in and of itself, which allows us to display the image of God to the, the world around us as we create, as we cultivate, as we protect. It's a way to exercise our God-given rule in the world, even if only in a limited and frustrated way. And when others are caught off guard by the pain, the frustration, the futility of their work, Christians persevere knowing that we will bear fruit because our goals are the right ones. They're the ones that God will see uh, to completion. By pursuing the right goals, working according to godly standards, displaying godly character, work is one of the chief ways we glorify God in our world. And when the world notices the high standards of our work, when, when it notices the, the gracious character that we have in the workplace, and that we consider our work as something part of, uh, as part of something much bigger than ourselves, we may well have the opportunity to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has redeemed the whole of our lives and who rules over every square inch of our work. This is the, the grand vision that the Bible paints for our work and that we should carry with us into tomorrow morning as we get up and go. It should transform and drive all that we do in the present. It should transform the way we think about what we do and give us the motivation to keep going when the curse of sin weighs heavily on us. I, I just want to close by reading you another excerpt from... Uh, Doriani's book. He says this, the Bible calls God the great king. We rule under him as vice regents. Our language reflects that when we grant royal labels to people, calling a man the king of comedy or a woman the queen of jazz. Of course, the Lord sees the excellence that we ignore. He may see the queen of the comforting family dinner that nourishes everyone there. He may know the king of the bedtime story, the teller of tall tales that, um, that rise and resolve in ways that gently lead children to sleep. The Lord notices our best efforts in washing dishes, in growing vegetables in our gardens, in repairing the dignity of an opponent that we've crushed on uh, the athletic field or waiting patiently on an indecisive customer. When Jesus returns, every kind of greatness will shine for all people to see. If we believe this, we should act on it. 
we should teach it to others so that the future keeps shaping the present of our work. I don't know what you're the king or the queen of, but Christ knows. You can glorify him with it. He will reveal the ways that you've glorified him with it in the end.